0: It's been a while, and yes, we're back, of course. Well, sort of, kind of, maybe, who knows? Uh, we've been dealing with uh, a lot of things after the you know Christmas vacation, the holidays. Merry Christmas to those of you who I haven't greeted yet. Happy New Year to those who are enjoying this year. If you're listening to this in the far future, it's 2022. If you're listening to this in the past, I want to know how you're able to do that. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, that doesn't really. Uh, you know, really make life so interesting. Ted Cruz had a topic. He was discussing row v. Wade. Now, uh, you know, rowing versus wading. What does that mean? Well, first of all, one is you're in a boat and you're rowing, and the other one is you're walking through the water. So it's better to be in the boat than walking through the water. The general argument with Roe v. Wade has always been that men should shut up about it and leave it to women. But unfortunately, that's not true because woman is only part of the equation in the discussion the unborn child whether it's a man or a woman uh has separate rights and that is what the pro life contention is in all of this it is something that of course you know teachers unions try to force on children to think oh you must only think this way you know that the unborn life is not a life well no that's not true because The unborn are alive, and they do have a life, and they do have rights, and someday in the near future, people are probably going to hear more about it and from them. 50 million killed in the United States just through this one act, an act of the people who are going for convenience at the sake of others' lives, and some people wonder why America has so many problems and seems to be facing so many issues. The biggest killer in the United States is beyond war is actually abortion. That is true. That is deliberate killings that take place when people do it for those reasons. Life is life. What do you say, Ted Cruz?
1: Well, it's not. And, and uh, the Supreme Court has overturned a lot of precedents over the 200 plus years of our nation's history. Uh, the justice that leaned in the hardest on saying that was Justice Breyer. And listen, he was trying to find a way to save Roe, uh, and his argument, uh, his argument really, really stemmed from the decision in Casey. So, so uh, a little bit of the history: Roe was 1973. Uh, it struck down essentially all the laws across the country that that banned abortion. Uh, it was a 7-2 decision. It was written by Harry Blackman. Uh, who had been an appointee of Richard Nixon and a Republican appointee um, and Blackman had previously been general counsel of the Mayo Clinic and and Blackman was was not a distinguished jurist um he he was one of the least distinguished members to ever serve on the court and the Roe versus Wade opinion is a terrible opinion uh, it, it it doesn't derive from the constitution it barely purports to and and Roe versus Wade set up this this trimester formula. Uh, In the first trimester, the state had almost no leeway regulating abortion. In the second trimester, they had more. And in the third, they had significantly more. That doesn't come from the Constitution, doesn't come from the Bill of Rights, Uh, but it was invented in Roe versus Wade. Fast forward to 1992. 1992, you've had 12 years of Reagan-Bush. You've had multiple Republican justices appointed to the court. You had Sandra Day O'Connor appointed to the court. You had Justice Scalia appointed to the court. You had Anthony Kennedy appointed to the court. You you had David Souter appointed to the court. And in 1992, the decision that everyone thought was going to overturn Roe versus Wade was a decision called Casey. And at the time, it, you know, it's a little bit like where we are now. It's part of, part of why conservatives are wary, even though the argument seems good. The argument seemed good in Casey. Casey concerned the state of Pennsylvania had a whole series of laws they passed that were some fairly modest restrictions on abortion. So for example, Pennsylvania required parental consent uh, for a minor to get an abortion. Uh, Pennsylvania required informed consent. Uh, before uh, a woman could get an abortion. Pennsylvania required a 24-hour waiting period. Um, Pennsylvania also required spousal notification. And when the case went up there, almost every observer said Roe versus Wade's going to be overturned. Well, what happened, it wasn't overturned. Uh, Casey, Casey reaffirmed Roe, And it upheld most of the different Pennsylvania laws. So it upheld the parental consent aspect, it upheld informed consent, it upheld the 24 hour waiting period, but it struck down spousal notification. And in Casey, you had three justices, O'Connor, Kennedy and Souter, who wrote this joint opinion, which is very strange. Normally an opinion is signed by one justice. None of them signed it. They wrote it together as a joint opinion because they were, I think, really trying to hide from accountability for what they were saying. And they threw out Roe's trimester system, and they replaced it with a new standard called undue burden, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. But Casey talked a lot about how Roe was a super precedent, that that, that it, it had a high threshold to be overturned, and so Justice Breyer kept Repeating the portions of, of of the Casey opinion, saying Roe was a super precedent because he's trying very hard to preserve it. Um, I'm not sure his arguments were very persuasive to his colleagues, though. We
2: actually have. A lot of great questions about this case specifically from our verdict plus subscribers. People are very interested in the nitty-gritty, the legality of this, not just the cultural aspect of abortion. Um, before we get to that, we've compiled a bunch of video clips or not video clips, audio clips from the Supreme Court oral arguments to address some of these questions. So I want to toss this to Michael.
3: Great. All right, Liz, we'll get back to you a little bit uh, with the mailbag. And and Senator, what you've what you've laid out here is actually it's made me even more confused. It's not your fault. It's just the, the history of the way these decisions have gone on at the court. So we've got Roe, we've got Doe, which is different than Roe, I take it. And then later on, we've got Casey. And all of this affirms some right to an abortion, but the, the justification for the right to an abortion kind of changes. I, I guess actually, Justice Thomas, now in the Dobbs questioning, gets to the heart of this question. He says, "What?" What right is this really about? Take a listen.
4: What constitutional right protects the right to abortion? Um, Is it privacy?
0: Is it autonomy? What would it be?
2: It's liberty, Your Honor. It's the uh, textual protection in the 14th Amendment that a state can't deprive a person of liberty without due process of law. And the court has interpreted liberty to include the right to make family decisions and the right to physical autonomy, including the right to end a pre-viability pregnancy.
3: So simple question from Justice Thomas. What right are we talking about? If I talk about the right to have a gun, I can point to the Second Amendment and say, there's my right to have a gun what is the right? The right is abortion. And she says, no, it's, it's liberty in the 14th amendment, maybe applied differently depending on the case you're talking about. So what Senator, please help me.
1: What is she talking about? So so let me say at the outset that, that I love justice Thomas's voice, the deep (laughs) gravelly voice. And I'll tell you, I've, I've been blessed to, I know justice Thomas fairly well and spend time with him when he laughs it is like santa claus it is the most unbelievably deep oh, oh, oh. That, that, that that is just spectacular and he is I, I he is a true american hero um the reason he asked that question is because if you look at the constitution if you look at the bill of rights and you go look for the word abortion you don't see it um if you look for pregnancy you don't see it uh if you look for any authority for restricting and restricting and preventing states from from protecting unborn life you don't see it and there's a reason for that which is that many of the states did so that that had been the case for 150 years of our nation's history that the states had the authority uh to prohibit abortion you know the hippocratic oath in the oath that doctors take, every doctor takes, says I will not help a woman procure abortion. Um, so there had been centuries of of legal precedent that the, the states had the authority to do this. So how did we get to Roe? Well, to, to understand how we get to Roe, you have to get to, a, you have to start with a decision called Griswold versus Connecticut, which was one of the precursors to Roe. Okay. And, and it was a manufactured case that actually came out of Yale Law School. Your alma mater teed up Griswold versus Connecticut. And, and it, it was a, a woman who went to purchase contraceptives, was denied the, 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 the ability to purchase contraceptives pursuant to a state law that was rarely, if ever, enforced. But they went and found someone to enforce it so that they could tee up this test case. The Supreme Court in Griswold versus Connecticut struck down the prohibition on contraceptives. Um, look, I think a prohibition on contraceptives is incredibly stupid. It is very bad policy. Uh, I don't know any rational person in this country who believes contraceptives should be illegal.
3: Well, we'll get into it later. I'm sorry. We'll get into it later, Senator. <laughs> no, we'll, let's go on. Even Michael Knowles, I don't think, believes that. Um,
1: <laughs> depends on what year you're asking. You know, as a young man its not yes. But Griswold, actually, the reasoning, it it, it said, and this is where the court got a little metaphysical. It said it it, it was the first major decision that created what's called the right to privacy. And Justice Thomas in that clip refers to the right to privacy. And and the word privacy doesn't appear in the Constitution either. But what the court said is, is, is the court said, well, the protections... In the Bill of Rights, have emanations. Basically, they glow. And those emanations cast penumbras. A penumbra is a fancy word for a shadow. Now, okay. and within the penumbras from the emanations, we find the right to privacy.
0: So, as you listen to uh, Senator Cruz, now you have to remember, Senator Cruz is uh, more than just a Republican senator who you know sits on the Senate uh, and was elected from Texas uh, he actually is a jurist and in fact much of his uh, legal career after graduating from college was uh, uh, being uh, a uh, essentially a, a researcher for justices on the Supreme Court and that is where he entered Washington life uh, and and what drove him to go into politics. Many thought he was going to be a a jurist in the uh, in the first light of it all, and and so his his discussions are are pretty broad when it comes to, to these topics and goes into a lot of history and argumentation and what's it all about. But obviously, from a conservative position, um, as uh, his position being you know one of the two senators from Texas, he of course uh, has uh, his own. Uh, take on it and that of his constituents who are generally broadly very conservative on most issues and the vast majority there are pro-life when it comes to this even with this massive influx of people who are leaving uh the pro-death states or pro-choice as some would say uh, of new york and and california and other states that are just flooding into texas um it is basically now a very, very different uh, kind of uh, of situation when you look at all of these things and see exactly, you know, what uh, they're discussing. Now, Roe v. Wade, of course, is, is being discussed, its implementation and its legality before the court. And uh, what they were talking about there on the Senator's Podcast, which is the verdict, which I do listen to, Uh, I wish I had his numbers. Hopefully one day soon, I will. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that that are going on there. Um, We also heard today about the issues between Antonio Fauci and his constant fight with Dr. Rand Paul. A lot of people tend to forget that uh, Rand Paul is uh, a... Very uh, well-known surgeon, and in fact, uh, has had a lot of success on a lot of topics. Breaking news quickly on this podcast, uh, of course. By the time it gets out, and by the time you hear this, it will have already broken news. Uh, meaning, it's already out there. But let's listen. Uh, you know, as uh, Senate leaders um, are discussing. Um. From the, uh, from the floor of the Senate um, the uh, uh, plan by the Biden administration, uh, who was a former senator, by the way, that, that he plans to have the filibuster rule um, totally removed and uh, that, that the executive is now pushing for the removal of any debate on any issue in the United States Senate. When it comes to any bill that the administration wants to pass, now even when the Republican Party had both houses under their control, they never thought about this. They never pushed this. Uh, they they never sought to have no debate or no topic of discussion. In fact, um, the filibuster rule is is basically what allowed the Democrats to uh, to debate and carry out their issues and their concerns and. And, and work as a check and balance against the Trump administration in the past. Well, now Joe Biden says that that is not needed. That he wants his Build Back Better program and he wants all his projects. And, of course, there is a lot of discussion onto it. Uh, you know, the uh, current Senate leadership uh, is, is, of course, one that is held by Democrats um, at this point in time by virtue only of the vice president. Um, it is an equal house, equally divided. And, uh, well, you know, uh, leader McConnell, who is the minority leader in the house, uh, has his opinion on it. And he's coming before the microphone now. And let's listen to what exactly would it mean if there is no debate or no discussion on topics being brought before the Senate and how that affects things. Here is the Republican leader.
5: A year ago, during the insurrection, people tried to break the Electoral College. Now, Senate Democrats are trying to break the Senate. I think it's appropriate to ask, what would the Senate look like in a post-nuclear world? I ruled 14 onto the calendar last night about Uh, 10 or 12 bills that in a post-nuclear world we would be moving to which enjoy the support of all 50 Republicans and might well enjoy the support of a number of Democrats. In other words, the ability to set the agenda now exclusively in the hands of the majority would ironically shift over to the minority. Also, I think all of you know the Senate operates on unanimous consent. It takes unanimous consent to turn the lights on. So in a post-nuclear Senate, it's appropriate to ask, how easy would it be to get consent to turn the lights on? How easy would it be to have the traditional majority function of determining the agenda? This is a place America does not want to go to. It's also important to remember that the filibuster also gives smaller states an opportunity to have greater influence, an argument Senator Manchin has repeated over and over again. So let me say we're ready to have this vote. We think it's time for those who want to break the Senate to stand up and try to break the Senate, and let's see where everybody stands.
0: And that, of course, Senator McConnell. Let's listen now to one of the other Senator
5: Republican Schubert
2: leaders. Seems intent on moving forward with this, and they've manufactured a crisis uh, to try and uh, convince people that there's a convince their members, at least that is, that there's a rationale for doing this. But we all know better. Um, and this is a purely and simply a power grab. It's something that's not new. It's something that uh, Schumer's been talking about literally since 2019. The election issue's been talking about for a lot longer than that. These aren't new ideas. These are ideas they've been trying to get into law to give them an advantage in elections uh, going back years. But with respect to the filibuster, it's something that uh, he has been talking about now for several years. And so this is an excuse. It is nothing more, nothing less, or nothing else than that. Uh, to try and break the United States Senate in a very, and create an atmosphere where, in a very partisan way, they can move their agenda uh, with just Democrat votes. And, and that is absolutely contrary to what the founders envisioned the Senate to be all about. The Senate was to be a place, as the leader pointed out, where smaller states, states like my state of South Dakota, have a voice, where the minority party in this country, Uh, Those who didn't win the election have a voice in the legislative process. It requires bipartisanship. It requires consensus, and it creates greater stability long-term because you won't constantly have a revolving door where when power changes hands here in Washington, D.C., the uh, next side comes in and completely changes what the previous side had done. This is all about stability. It's all about uh, creating uh, an atmosphere for moderation. It's about predictability when it comes to our laws. And the Senate Democrats are intent, it seems at least, their leadership on blowing this all up. Uh, I, uh, I hope that it will fail. I hope that there are wiser heads on their side. And I hope for the sake of the people that I represent in South Dakota, who the Democrats seem to be saying right now, we don't care about what South Dakota thinks, that people all across this country will realize what's at stake here. And that is the, the history that we have as a nation. Making sure that those who uh, live in different parts of the country, those who didn't necessarily win the election, those who represent the minority party, have a role in our government, in our lawmaking process.
0: So that's the Republican side of the argument. And of course, uh, let's listen to the nose himself. Yeah, you know, the guy who loves every check that comes his way. Chuck Chuck Chucky Schumer. Yes, my senator, unfortunately, here in the state of New York. Uh, you know, whenever you see him, you always see dollar signs in his eyes. Uh, I just remember when people talk about him when it comes to political contributions, how every letter they get always comes with a letter, uh, another self-addressed stamp envelope where to send a donation to. Anyway, here's checkbook Chucky and what he has to say about wanting to be a dictatorial Republican, uh, eliminated Congress where only one voice will be heard, that of the Democrats, as they move closer to a dictatorship of the proletariat and a full formal communist takeover, it would seem, is what the Democrats are out for, say, the Republicans. But let's
4: listen. And uh, just two little points before we get into the substance. Uh, Last night, you may have seen uh, Senator McConnell try to um, uh, rule 14, Rule 14, 18 gotcha amendments. He was trying to say, See, Democrats, you're not going to like 50 votes. Uh, I challenged him and uh, asked unanimous consent that we have 50 votes on those 18 plus the um, Voting Rights Act, the uh, Freedom to Vote Act, and the John Lewis Act. And of course, he objected. So we're not afraid of 50 votes. We want 50 votes. And McConnell's gotcha uh activity didn't quite work and then this morning i was on the floor and i saw senator cornyn with a big sign it said 94 of the people thought voting was easy in 2020. so i guess senator cornyn believes that the big lie that the election was uh, uh, uh jaundiced is false because, if you-,
0: you know, I'm not even going to bother listening to this poll. I mean, the more I see even in his face, the more disgusted I get and I just want to throw up.
4: Fraud. But John and Sign says, oh, no, the election was good in 2020.
0: Yeah, it was good for them because they cheated. And that's basically what happened even here in New York City. You could hear so many people talking about it. And now, now in New York City, they're allowing foreigners to vote. If you live in New York City... For 30 days, if you're a foreigner, you will be allowed to vote. It was assigned into in the law. And uh, that's something that is unprecedented in almost any country in the world. I mean, you could literally have people jump across the border, come to New York City, have a mail, an envelope mailed to them, and they could elect El Chapo as mayor. Yes, that is how sick and demented these Democrats are. Um, so he hasn't proven any fraud at all or any degree of fraud um that comes no identification no nothing required just the idea that you can register to vote in 30 days in new york city that's chuck schumer's district and then he talks about there's nothing to worry about there's no fraud really he's the fraud
4: close to the 7 million votes he lost by uh even now as i said republicans are talking about how 94 percent of americans said voting was easy in 2020 great let's keep it that way but why, then, are Republican state legislatures, like those in Georgia and Texas and a lot of other places, passing laws in 2021 that makes it harder to vote? It's because, frankly, they're simply following Donald Trump's big lie. Republicans talk out of both sides of their mouth. They're saying voting in 2020 was easy, but the Senate cannot, cannot act to prevent states from making it harder to vote in 2022 or 2020.
0: Well, you know, basically what they want to do is they want to make take away every piece of Voter identification so that anybody can go in and vote whatever they want as many times as the day they want and just basically allow anything goes. They don't even want direct voting anymore. It used to be forever. One person, one vote. That vote was counted. In many places, they're doing what they call as rank choice voting, which is basically a filter that allows a committee to review the total number of votes and assign votes to those that were losing so that they can win. And that's the Democrats for you. And this is what they're so heartily trying to
4: defend. Will drop from 111 to 23. How does that reduce voter fraud?
0: It's ridiculous. The ridiculous part here is that anybody who actually authored legislation that provided funding for Kenya to receive voter identification and uh, other assistance to, to the $28 million. Chuck Schumer is one of the authors of that in the U.S. Senate. It was requested by the Obama administration and $28,000 was given for voter identification and voter IDs and biometrics to allow people to be able to vote and that the integrity of the vote be clear in many African countries, Kenya being the most notable one. And yet here in the United States, they don't really care where your vote is coming from, so long as it's something that can be manipulated by the Democratic Party. Every
4: senator is going to have to make a choice. Plain and simple about uh, whether muttered our democratic republic. We had a very sobering, even frightening discussion today with two professors from Harvard who wrote. What is it? Why? How, how democracies die? Levitsky, and another nice man, Ziblatt. Ziblott, and it was
0: well. They, you know, they keep talking to these guys from Harvard, but unfortunately, the guys from Harvard are also the guys who were. Seemingly rigging the election. Well, that's it for me for now. For today, eh, I had to give the other side, but I also had to butt in there for a little bit. Talk to you soon as we get more topics in. I'm Mike of New York, and this has been Mike of New York.